Welcome back to the Splashcast, where we talk about all things water. I'm your host, Sarah Sales, and today I have a question for you. If you turned on your tap and the water coming out was brown or smelled bad or had a strange flavor, what would you do? I want you to think about that for the next 20 minutes or so. This episode is the first in a series on humans and water in which I'm going to explore issues such as public health, water as an equity issue, and water accessibility, both here on the U.S. border with Mexico and in other countries around the world. When the city of Flint, Michigan switched from city water to river water in April of 2014, it was less than a month before the residents began to see and taste the difference, and by August of that year, E. coli and other dangerous bacteria were acknowledged publicly as existing in the water supply. By October of that same year, General Motors rejected the Flint River water, saying the heavy metals it contained were too harmful to their machinery. But still, the city pumped this contaminated water into people's homes. We are still shocked here in March of 2018 that the residents of Flint still don't have clean, uncontaminated drinking water from their taps. And what would you do if you lived in a rural community which had naturally occurring arsenic in the groundwater? The people of Vinton, Texas, near El Paso, have had to deal with this contamination for the entire life of their village. In spite of repeated attempts to lobby the state of Texas for help, the residents of Vinton have hauled water for years and will finally be able to hook up to El Paso City water later this year. If you haven't had to think about the quality of your water for more than a few hours or days, if ever, you may not be able to imagine what poor water quality can mean for your health or the health of your community. To learn more, I turned to two researchers at the University of Texas at El Paso who have studied water as a quality and public health issue on the border of the United States and Mexico. And I found out much that we might do to protect against contaminating our own water and that of future generations. I'm Bill Hargrove. I'm the director of the Center for Environmental Resource Management at the University of Texas at El Paso. And uh, I work primarily on water issues in the U.S.-Mexico border region, um, both uh, larger picture issues related to the sustainability of our water resources in the area, especially the Rio Grande and our aquifers, um, and also water issues in rural areas along the border uh, in rural communities. And I am Michelle Del Rio and I'm a um, PhD student at the Interdisciplinary Health Sciences Program at UTEP. And I'm the former program manager for health impact assessments. And I concentrate in environmental health issues um, such related to water, wastewater management, and um, public um, infrastructure or including transportation. Michelle, you were telling me a little bit about yourself earlier, and it was a wonderful story. So tell my listeners a little bit about where you came from, where you grew up, and how you became interested in these water topics and other uh, public health uh, issues. Yes, so I was born in El Paso, uh, which is a border community 
um, to Mexico. And um, I, I noticed that in my community we had poor infrastructure, um, a lot of disease morbidities, and just not, I not enough education opportunities. So I set myself to learn about what were the factors that impact my community, and I wanted to um, provide solutions. And so throughout my whole academic training, I so, um, sought for these what, what these factors were, and I found out that they were it's clinical practice, it's um, social uh, and, and environmental factors. But also I learned that we also need to use science um, to inform policy. The big picture question that I had wanted to ask you, Dr. Hargrove, um, was with, with so much emphasis right now on what's happening in Flint, Michigan, I think people are really interested in water quality issues, and Michelle kind of brought this up. What are some of those factors that um, impact water quality, not just in developing countries, but right here in the United States as well? Well, I'm going to answer that primarily in the context of state of Texas, because that's what I'm most familiar with. The majority of people, uh, population in Texas, live in urban areas and have access to um, municipal water supplies that provide good quality potable water to the population. But I think uh, one of the challenges is, especially in rural areas, which in terms of, of area in the state is much bigger than the urban areas, maybe um, many fewer people live in that area, but still, there are many challenges in rural areas because people are dependent sometimes on their own domestic wells on their property, or maybe they're dependent on a small rural community water supplies. But regardless, usually the, the um, source of water is from uh, local groundwater for the most part. And sometimes, depending on the area of the state, water can be contaminated with a, a number of, of uh, naturally occurring constituents. Uh, like in our area, uh, arsenic is a problem because it is uh, geological and naturally occurring in groundwater. Uh, salt can also be a problem. But then there are also other uh, contaminants that, that might be present as a result of, of um, our uh, human activity. Um, could be nitrates from fertilizers that are used either in agriculture or even in, in uh, residential areas. Uh, pesticides, maybe even sometimes uh, E. coli and other, other kinds of bacteria or biological organisms that are coming from waste and maybe poorly treated uh, wastewater that's also discharged to either streams or maybe coming from septic tanks and, and other sources. So there are a number of, of um, challenges that, that uh, can be present, especially in rural areas. What can science do to address water quality issues? What is science doing to address water quality issues? Well, I think there are a range of uh, ways that science can address some of the issues, maybe starting with how water and wastewater are treated and in very uh, technical ways in terms of how we treat water for potable purposes. And uh, like I said, also how we treat 
wastewater because the, most of the wastewater from small towns and well larger cities too is treated and discharged to streams for the most part in the in the state of Texas. So they're treatment technologies and we're constantly learning how to better treat water to remove constituents like arsenic, but I think other ways too in terms of, of how products are managed, how our, our lifestyle, how that uh, impacts constituents that could get into water and learning more about uh, the fate and transport of, of chemicals that we use in our everyday life is also contributing to, to um, our knowledge base in terms of how we manage these products so that uh, we keep them out of the water supply. So science can inform policy, and oh, oh that's uh, policy and related to to water issues, and it could really de inform decision making and planning, and also educate the community about the issues. What can the average person do? We all drink water, and we all uh, contribute to the waste stream. So I think first is just realizing that basic <laughs> fact um, that in terms of how we use water how we um, use a variety of products in our everyday life, I'm talking about consumer products, and how we basically manage you know, where we live, the especially the landscaping and, and uh, area around our homes. I mean, all of these activities can, can contribute to, to protecting water quality and I think also to water conservation. I think we think need to think about it as well, not just in terms of the quality of the water, but in terms of quantity of water as well, in terms of how we use water, how much, and uh, how we can conserve water at your individual household level. I want to go back to E. coli. Um, you talked about it a little bit, but go into a little bit more detail about the dangers of E. coli and um, who should be concerned about that and what how specifically that can be a problem because I know when we say E. coli people are immediately going to be scared by that it's it's um, definitely in the media is a very negative um, issue that we deal with so what are some of the ways that that can enter the water system and who should be concerned about it well again with adequate waste control wa waste water control and treatment it shouldn't be an issue but in rural areas especially uh, most people are dependent on septic tank systems to manage their waste and um, if septic tanks are not functioning properly and the drain fields are not functioning properly it is possible that organisms can either be um, washed off through runoff into either streams or other water bodies or maybe be leached in the soil uh, down into the groundwater that would be um, one example of how the water supply could be contaminated with organisms. Uh, another way would be from municipal wastewater, which is m mostly discharged again into streams. For the most part, wastewater is treated to remove most of these organisms, but there's, there's always a situation where some can be contributed uh, through 
uh, wastewater discharges. Stay tuned, Humans on the Street is next, and then more of the interview with Michelle Del Rio. Humans on the Street. This month, I spent a morning at the Las Cruces Farmers Market asking humans on the street what their water quality concerns might be. So do you worry about the quality of the water that's coming out of your taps? No, not right now. I guess I don't. Um, there's benefits to obviously drinking tap water, and the fluoride is a big reason, even though we tend to drink more bottled water than tap water. But yeah, I do. my little one tends to drink more tap um, and that's a good thing for her fluoride. So do you ever worry about the quality of the water coming from the taps? Always, always, especially because sometimes the pipes give out such a, a nasty smell. So I'm wondering like what is it? And sometimes it smells like chlorine, sometimes it smells like runoff water. We have to buy bottled water and usually gallons of water, that's what we use. According to what I've read and been told, there's all kinds of chemicals in the water. We got uranium leaking into it, is what I've been told. Uh, being in the desert, you're going to be more water conscious anyway. So uh, I'm concerned most all the time with what our uh, leaders are doing to keep our water clean. I actually use a, a bit of water filter at home because it comes out of the tap, smells horrendous. I'm worried about the lime, the various minerals, and all the fertilizers and runoff and all that good stuff. There's too many times during the year where the water comes out brown or very, that heavy mineral smell and it's just not drinkable. Do you ever worry about the quality of the water that's coming from your taps? No, not really. No? Nope, never have worried about it. It's always been pretty good. How do you know that it's been good? What are some of the signs of that? There's never been anything like unusual in the flavors or the smells or even on the service. It's always been steady. Um, we get tap water and that's fine. I make coffee with that. Then we have it connected to the refrigerator and that goes through a filter. So we get filtered water coming out of that. So it's always been fine. Do you happen to know what they call contaminants other than fluoride are in the water that you're drinking? Um, no, I don't, but I would figure that there's other minerals in the water I just yeah. obviously that's why it's hard and you get like the buildup and stuff like that so there are other minerals in there but don't know if they're contaminants or yeah. or not well what's funny is they call everything a contaminant even fluoride which is good for you um, in this area we have some copper we have some arsenic but not at levels that are actually dangerous they've tested the water and it does have um, so much like copper and all that. What kind of contaminants do you think they might be finding in the water here? Lead. Probably more biological contaminants than anything else. Would it surprise you to know that our bodies have evolved to the point that we have to have contaminants, a small trace amount of contaminants to metabolize water? I'm not the least bit surprised, but yes, that's a revelation to me. Of course, these contaminants that our body needs to more fully use water are benign salts and minerals. But remember what I told the folks I visited with at the farmer's market. Everything in the water, no matter whether it's good or bad for you, is considered a contaminant. 
If you are interested in learning about the water in your municipality, do a Google search for the name of your city, followed by the words Water Consumer Confidence Report. Every municipality is required by law to test and provide reports on their water quality. As you may remember from the very first Splashcast episode, I'm a PhD student doing this podcast as a side project to my dissertation. It is a learning experience in every possible way, and this March episode, now airing in April, has been very educational. To say I had some technical difficulties with this episode would be an understatement. Fortunately, my interviewees were very gracious in spite of the glitches, and Michelle Del Rio was able to meet me for a second try at our conversation on public health. So we often think that water quality is only an issue in other countries, particularly developing countries. But I think that the problem in Flint, Michigan is finally bringing this issue home to the U.S. So what are some of the factors that can impact water quality even in a developed country? Yes, some of the factors here in the U.S. that we see is overall water access. I think that's one main issue. And then it comes water quality. Um, in the communities along the U.S.-Mexico border, the ones I we worked on, they have to haul water 10 miles, an average of 10 miles, one way, um, three times a week to get water. And this is for indoor and outdoor use. Um, so imagine that you're a 60-year-old person and or we even met 90-year-old individuals doing this trip. But then when they, when they get it to their home, now what's the quality of it? And so uh, we, we tested water like that that's being hauled and for this community that we particularly uh, worked on, thankfully the, the quality was good uh, in terms of like, it was as good as if it came out from the tap water from the city. But the, you know, the risks are still there. You know, if you have it out there with improper um, coverage or um, the you, you have the top open, then it o- can always be open for contamination from bacteria or from just particles in the air. Give me more detail about your qualitative work. Um, how is what you're doing related to water security and quality issues? So we get to hear the stories of the individuals who struggle with, with having just water every day. I'm going back to that community that I met, the elderly hauling water. Um, some of them have had accidents, like trying to haul the, their tanks from the city to their homes. They have fallen up the tanks, having injuries. Um, some of them I met they even felt coming out of their going into their home from getting water from a bucket to try to get inside their homes to shower so it's it's really um, there's a humanistic factor behind these stories and sometimes we, we think of science like just bearing facts but hu- the human factor is so valuable and um, I think we need to put that a forefront in science when we do the work so what can the average person on the street just the average person out there living their life do to help alleviate water quality issues, whether it's in their own home or or just kind of in general? For the average person or at home, um, there are two things that you can do. One is be more conscious about your water use in terms of like how much do you really need and um, conserving water. So you could change your practices. 
go to more um, landscapes that don't really need as much water if necessary. Um, but also, um, you can look at what is being put back into the water system. So whatever waste you're, cons you're doing, uh, make sure that you're not using very harsh chemicals and because all that you know, eventually turns back to our tap water, our drinking tap water. So how does someone know that they have a water quality problem? They know because they see it, they smell it. I've met, I've, I met people, for example, even down more to the valley, like in Tornillo. The individuals tell me, yeah, we open the tap water and it's brown, brown. We can't use it for two days or, and we know for sure we can't drink it because we're getting reports from the water company that their cynic levels are high enough higher than the um, EPA acceptable limit, and therefore we can't drink it. So my follow-up to that is, then how are these water quality problems happening, even the short-term ones that you're talking about, and what factors are they tied to? Well, first of all, your location, right? So where your location, it depends what the quality of, of the water that you're getting from the water table is, first of all. So for example, here in southern Texas, the, the geology um, really has high, higher acidic, so our water, and higher um, total dissolved salts, or salts. And so we see in our area that our we deal with higher acidic and salts that we need to filter out. Filter out. But in, if you go more to the Midwest or, or maybe in another location, then their water quality is a little bit of less salt and less arsenic. And so they don't have to treat as much. When when that happens, for example, um, back in the Southwest, now we, we have emission quality, then there's a cost associated to get, get that quality down. And so where's the money coming from? So there is an economic factor into it. And so that's where it becomes the most challenge part because now you have to make sure the quality is right. And then second, um, how is it getting to your consumers? So are the consumers nearby? Are they really far away in the rural places? And so we see both where it's only the no ones near it could, could get access to it. And then those who live very far away won't have access to it. And so, yes, there's economic location factors, the two main factors that I see. Are, are there any other things about water quality that I haven't asked that you think my listeners should know about or think about? I think one thing that I could mention on water quality is that it's a responsibility of everyone. It's not just governmental officials, but it's also at the at those who are consuming it. And so it's, it's everyone's responsibility to take care of the water, because if we all take care of it, then the quality will always be there. What is your call to action for my listeners um, as regards water quality in their own backyard? Yeah. Uh, my call to action is I it's at different levels. At the consumer level, at home, you know, be more conscious about the water use and the water you're putting, the water waste you're putting back. Um, second would be to the local officials, you know, be proactive in making sure that uh, water access is for everyone. And then at the governmental level, or federal level, making sure that regulations for water quality are set and followed, but also that funding is available for those communities who don't have, who are are low in economic resources or in just general resources to really provide that kind of water access and quality that is needed for basic human need.
I was both honored and gratified to get to speak with two such passionate and knowledgeable scientists who work on a regular basis with water quality and public health issues here on the U.S.-Mexico border. And I'm looking forward to continuing this conversation in the next episode in this series as we start here at home and then move to a more global perspective. As always, I've had amazing help with this episode and my podcast in general. My logo design is by the talented artist Timothy Burns, whose Facebook link can always be found on my blog, thesplashcast.wordpress.com. A friend who is a genius at finding music, Amy Moffat, helped me discover music I've used for this and other episodes, and my pal Carlos Parra first suggested the name for the podcast. The music I used this month included the theme, A Surprise Encounter, used under a Creative Commons license, and two pieces of regional folk music, both found in the public domain. The first is a song called El Son de la Manta, in which a young lover takes his girlfriend out dancing. The second song is called Las Cuatro Milpas, The Four Cornfields, in which the farm is lost and the lake has dried up because the farmer's love is lost. My very special thanks to Michelle Del Rio for translating the first of these two songs for me. These old-timey love songs fit our story perfectly. As always, you can make your own contributions to the Splashcast podcast by visiting my blog at thesplashcast.wordpress.com. Suggest a topic for a show, volunteer to write a blog post, or just make a comment on one of the episodes. Drink your water this month in good health and join me again next time on The Splashcast.